Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and their writing process. Today's guest is an MBA news editor at The Score, a former writer at Bleacher Report, Raptors HQ, and more, and one of the OGs of Raptors Twitter. It's Chris Walder. How you doing, man? One of the OGs of Raptors Twitter. Man, I'm going to put that on my Twitter profile now, man. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. You definitely should, um, at least as long as I've been around on Twitter, and I had it for a long time. Uh, I think I did get it near its inception, although I didn't use it for like the first few years. But as long as I've been around in the uh, Raptors Twitter sphere, uh, I think I've been following you. So, um, yeah, it's, man, it's been a journey on Raptors Twitter. Now Raptors Twitter is like a huge thing, I guess, just like every team Twitter is. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta love Raptors Twitter. I'm no uh, Blake Murphy uh, or William Liu, but if I'm uh, if I'm up there with that upper echelon, then uh, I'll take it, man. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> no problem, man. So we definitely have uh, a lot to get to with this piece. Um, I'm really excited to talk about it. You've said it's like the most personal thing you've ever written, and you posted it on Medium because this is what this is. It's like a, it's a personal story. Um, it's not necessarily about basketball. There's there's some basketball stuff obviously related in it and it's about sports and it's about more than sports really a piece about life about your life and it's fascinating so I wanted to get into it um so like I said you wrote it on medium and it's called my journey to the score working for the Raptors battling anxiety and rebuilding my life so okay so I just want to open with really your opening lines which are questions a few questions and they're familiar I think to a lot of people who are experiencing, you know, worry, anxiety, or fear. I think a lot of writers especially feel this at some point about the direction in their life. Uh, a lot of people know that, you know, um, everybody says about writing, that oh, it's, a, it's a bit of a shaky career path because it's hard to get paid to be a writer. And, you know, almost any industry you're going into, you're going to have these thoughts at some point, like, how am I going to get paid? How, am I even good at what I'm about to be doing? Should I be getting paid? You know, stuff like that. So I, I think that was a just a really poignant place to start off the piece. What, how, why did you go to those questions right away? Well, I mean, as we record this podcast, I'm sitting at the desk where I would spend those endless nights, you know, writing the the pieces for Bleacher Report and Raptors HQ, and it, I would those thoughts would constantly come into my mind. You know, I, I'm I mentioned it in my piece that I'm kind of a procrastinator. And I would leave things to the last minute and I would kind of get carried away doing other things. Like if I'm on a laptop, I'll probably find time to like watch a few YouTube clips, listen to some podcasts, what have you. But there would be times where like just like silent moments where I wasn't doing anything and I would just kind of like go off on, you know, daydream or or think to myself about like what I'm doing in that moment. And, you know, writing my pieces and and thinking to myself, am I I even good at this? Like, when I publish this, is anyone going to even care to read it? Are they going to put me down? You know, the the trolls of the universe would always find something to, like, nitpick at, whether it's your opinion or the the way you write. So when I was, you know, putting words to – putting words down, I would think – you know, I, I would constantly like reevaluate like what I'm writing and and the purpose of, of why I'm writing it. Like, am I making any money? Like, it, I was just like my own worst enemy at that time. So to start off my piece, I figured, you know, that was a poignant way to kind of be- begin things off. And then I would go into the whole, you know, my spiel about working for the Raptors and what have you. But I just kind of, you know, with the tone of my piece, I think that was the perfect way to start. Yeah, definitely. And you kick things off too by right after that talking about how you um, 
took a fifth year in high school, which is interesting because I thought really hard long about uh, long and hard about that when I was in high school, even though I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And I think I ended up not taking one partly because uh, I decided that it uh, I didn't really have much for me left there and that because I had a general direction, I was like, okay, I'm going to take it and just start right away. Even though the vast majority of my classmates, and I think a lot of people, do take a fifth year, um, whether it be just as a victory lap or because they don't know what they want to do or whatever. Um, and while you were taking that fifth year, you connected with that teacher that had um, connections with the Raptors, which is, wow, what a stroke of luck. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty rare. I just told her, like, I wanted to do something in sports. And at first she said she had something with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I'm like, ah, I'm not really a hockey guy, but I'll do it if it's kind of like my foot in the door. And then she mentioned, oh, okay, let me, I remember something about this, this student I had that, that did something for the Raptors. Like they were there, like, you know, rolling shirts and, and, and whatnot, like little tasks like that. And I'm like, well, damn, I'm, I'm a huge NBA guy. Like, and, and I didn't even think of any, anything of it at the time. I thought, man, there's no, there's no way something is going to happen because of this, but what the hell? Like uh, the reason I stayed for a fifth year was for, you know, the slim chance that an opportunity like this might present itself. So uh, yeah, she, she hooked me up with an interview and the day of the interview, like they put me to work right away. I'm like, are you guys even like talking to anybody else? Like any other students? And they're like, no, we're just gonna, we like you go downstairs and meet your supervisor and do whatever they need you to do. So I was there for you know, four, six hours just rolling T-shirts and shooting the shit with my supervisor, Chris Cross, just talking about life. And he was getting to know me and it all happened so fast. Like, but I was eternally grateful for my for my teacher for helping me get this, it, the wheels in motion with that. Yeah, definitely. That's I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't believe uh, <laughs> that's so awesome and so random. Um, but it's also great that and your teacher recognized that. uh that that might be something that you're interested in and helped you with the connection there. It is a, a lot of things in life I'm learning are about connections in general and just who you know at the right time and stuff like that. So you met for the job in Game Ops, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So uh, you also met, apparently, PJ Tucker. Oh, God. That, that That's always, like, one of the stories that sticks with me. Like, I'm sitting <laughs> there in, in a Gate 2, just, in, like, at the Air Canada Centre waiting for my interview. And down comes – and I, I mentioned this in the story, so I'm just recapping. Uh, down comes my supervisor in uh, the elevator, Anton Wright. And he's standing there with this with this giant dude. And I have no idea who it is because I'm, I'm barely paying any attention. So I get on the elevator. He just kind of, like, signals me to come up with him. So the door's closed. And he just like kind of leans over to me. He's like, do you know who that was? And I'm like, God, it was probably a Raptor. Like in my head, I'm like, it's probably a Raptor. But I didn't know who the hell that was because uh -huh. I wasn't really looking at his face or anything. <laughs> he's like, oh, that's PJ Tucker. And I'm like, oh, OK. Like I, at that point, PJ Tucker wasn't like the Houston Rockets PJ Tucker, like yeah. a well-known player. Like he just got drafted. He was a second round pick. So I just look at him. And he's like, oh, that's. You know that's cool. It wasn't like a star or anything, but I was like, "Oh, that's cool." It was a, it was, it was a raptor. Now I could say, you know, because PJ Tucker is like established himself. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty cool story. But in the moment, I'm like, "Yeah, dope." Like I'm trying to get a job <laughs> with the Raptors. I should probably know who these guys are. Yeah, that's pretty random. Did he say anything to you, or is he just kind of there? No, he walked off the elevator with Anton, and he just kind of, you know, left the building, and, you know, Anton was just kind of like, you know, with, with his suave suit and whatnot, he's just like, come here, and 
let's go up, but not, not, not like not like a dick or anything. It's just like, let's go up to my office and do the interview. And no, I didn't get a chance to talk to PJ Tucker, unfortunately. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. That's, that's random that he was there, but also uh, pretty neat. Um, even if uh, it's so weird to think about him now as like second round draft pick, fresh PJ Tucker. Um, yeah, he wasn't nearly as big as he is now. Oh, he, was yeah? skinny, he was a skinny dude back in the day. Wow, really? I, it's so weird. I, I can't even think of P.J. Tucker now as like his first couple of years. Like I'm so used to the defensive stalwart P.J. Tucker. Yeah, wow. but I'm happy he's, he's, he's come a long way. We're, we're, we're proud that we could say he's a former Raptor. Oh, definitely. That, that season that he came back recently was really great. I enjoyed having him on the team. I like P.J. Tucker a lot. Yeah, it sucked to see him go. But hey, he's doing big things in Houston. Yeah, great, he's great, great for them. Okay, so you got the job. Um, and like you said, they kind of started you like right away that day, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, so you went, you did it basically unpaid for a year and then they brought you back as a full-time game crew member. Yeah. I mean, they didn't pay me because I was technically still just like a co-op kid who was doing, you know, those menial tasks as an internship, but they did promise me like, you you do a good job. We'll we'll bring you back. We'll, we'll we'll give you like, you know, a part-time salary or whatever. Cause you know, there's only 41 games. And I was only at that point, you know, when I was an intern, I was coming in not only for game days, but I would come in the day before to kind of set up prize packs and get promotional stuff ready. But once I became like a a game crew member under, you know, when they were starting to pay me, I was only in for the games. So it was a cool, you know, going to school and whatnot. And there was some nights, you know, you come back downtown Toronto, you go to a game, you work for five hours. And, you know, for the second half, mostly you're just watching the games in, in one of the in one of the in one of the sections there because during the first half is when they're doing all of like the the encore stuff like the skits like I would come out there and you know whenever the raptor did a dunk I would set up the trampoline and I would stand there in the back make sure he didn't kill himself <laughs> just just little just little things like that and there was even one season where I was designated as being the raptor's like assistant so I would come in like a couple of hours early and I would I would bring up his costume and I would chase him around the entire building. Like he had to be in certain places, whether it was like a, for a photo op or to like mingle with fans. And it was that year when I realized that I am so out of shape because this guy is like the fastest human being on the planet. And I don't know how he does it with that suit on. Mm-hmm. And that, ever since then, I've like gone to the gym at least like four times a week for cardio because that just showed me right there. Like, Chris, it, it, it's not happening, buddy. But all all of the all of those experience like all the all of the little things i i did like there's a million stories i could tell you about like my experience with the raptors but all in all like i thoroughly enjoyed my time there i met so many great people uh you know the like that experience i meant i mentioned in the story when i was bringing up the raptors uh luggage and randy foy yeah uh the former minnesota timberwolf <laughs> i like legit thought i was a raptor like i thought he was just joshing me he's like yeah we're gonna, we're gonna kick your ass tonight i'm like oh and i was like decked out in like my raptor shirt and my track pants and like he must have thought like i was a player or something he's like are you on the like are you on the team like no, I'm like I'm like six feet, like at best. And he's like looking at me like I'm friggin' Jose Calderon. But yeah, that just like little moments like that. Like it, it was a dream come true for a guy who grew up watching the team and now obviously getting to cover it. So uh, I look back on it with uh, the fondest of memories. Yeah, it's so random the Randy Foy thing. I I was laughing so hard when I was reading that. I was like Randy Foy. That's such a random guy to come in and just start talking smack. I can't believe that. He just immediately assumed that you were a raptor because you're wearing raptors related stuff. 
That's how you know that I'm not making up that story because Randy Foy, like of all the players in the NBA dimension, like Randy Foy, Minnesota Timberwolves. Like I, I don't know why that memory sticks with me so much. I just thought it, it was fascinating that someone like him could like mistake me for a player. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so I guess so. That I, you mentioned quickly that like um, that going back and forth between doing this and school as well. That must have been like an interesting balance like was it was it difficult doing both of those things or or is it just like it didn't matter because you were so into um just being a part of the raptors yeah i, I mean if, if i was going to to school in the morning and then i would have to you know head downtown right away if like if there was a seven o'clock game i had to be there for five o'clock so mm-hmm. it just kind of like made the days a lot longer and you know the, the raptors at most we were playing like three home games a week wednesday friday and then Sunday I wasn't at school anyway, but it it taught me to like kind of balance things out and, and and plan my time time accordingly because school on its own was like you know burying me just with all of the workload and like all of the the field work I had to do plus going downtown taking the go train to go to these Raptors games I was like if I could get through this like these like twelve hour days and not be like emotionally and physically drained then I could think I could do anything at that point. But I was so happy just working with the Raptors and the job itself wasn't exactly like draining outside of like chasing the mascot around. Like at the start of games, like I would probably like run around whenever they had like the, the Raptors letters and you would run around in a circle and then just kind of come off the side. Like that's the most running I would do most games and just a lot of heavy lifting and whatnot and interacting with fans like, Hey, you want to come on the court and, play a game you might win a t-shirt or a prize pack or whatever like that's the extent of my job most nights and then i'm just sitting there like watching the raptors play a second half and then i would do my duties after the game so it's not like if, if i was in retail and then people hate their lives and have to deal with like idiot customers the whole time like i really i really did enjoy my job but at the end of the day, it, it was just part-time work, and school eventually became, you know, more and more of a priority. So I had to like decide whether I wanted to like really go balls to the wall, like get my education, do all of this like intern stuff on the side, or try and juggle it. And after what was it like five or six seasons, I was with the Raptors. I was like, okay, I think I've gotten what I needed at this job. There's obviously no room for progression. Yeah. So uh, I just kind of made my decision there. But you did say it helped you like loosen up and kind of get out of your comfort zone, right? Was it was that like the first time you'd done any of that kind of stuff, like fighting the mascot in a sumo suit and stuff like that? Oh my god! Like most, I'm sometimes I'm like the most timid person in the world, and other times I'm like the most outgoing, like I'm your best friend kind of guy. But there was there was things that they would ask me to do that, yeah, in a million years I would never think were even possible for me. Like you just go out there and you just. You don't you don't care like you just do what you're told like if it's a job like someone asks you hey you have to do this I'm like okay I'll I'll go do it like for example there was uh this the, the year of the Super Bowl when it was the Colts and the Bears they had me and the other intern come out there in sumo suits and they would paste like the like a photocopy of the team logo on our suits and we would have to run back and forth to the middle of the court like disposing footballs or whatnot but the raptor was there the mascot he was dressed up as like an official and he just told us beforehand you know i'm gonna go out there i'm not gonna beat the crap out of you 
I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? He's like, I'm just going to like knock you to the ground. I'm like going to elbow drop you and whatever. I'm like, what? Like, isn't that going to hurt? And he's like, you're wearing a sumo suit. Like, it's not going to hurt. I'm like, all right, whatever you want to do. And I'm, I'm already a big guy. So if you knock me over, it's going to be hard to get up. Yeah. He, he pushed me to the ground and it was like, you're wearing like a, obvious, uh, like a fat suit at that point. I could, I could not get up for the life of me. So I remember him picking me up by the hand, like struggling. Cause it, it was a, it was a big suit. And then he pushes me back down and he just comes on top of me with like with the full weight of his body with like a leg drop or a, or an elbow drop or whatever he was doing at that point. I was just like, I was like, I was hurting, but I thought this was like the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> like there's like 18,000 people in this building right now watching me get like dominated by like a Raptors, like the Raptors mascot, like who I think is like the best mascot in all of sports. Like you put him up against anybody else, in my opinion, he stands there mm-hmm. like near, like near the top and being able to work with him and do like little skits like that was like. You know, the 10-year-old Chris Walder who's watching, like, the Raptors, like, and Damon Stoudemire and that generation of guys and being able to go on the court and do those things, yeah, it totally loosened me up. Like, now now I feel like I can do anything, really, in front of a – put me in front of 100,000 people. I'll do whatever you want. Perfect for karaoke nights. <laughs> no, you don't want to hear me sing, buddy. It's not happening. Uh, okay, so – after this, you you went into radio broadcasting first, which I thought was interesting. I didn't know this. So what was your um, initial reasoning for going into radio broadcasting? People, I forget who told me this joke. It's like a common joke. It's like you have a, you have like a, the voice for radio and, and the face for radio. <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank you. But people have always co- had complimented me on my voice. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I, I, I think I sound like a doofus, but whatever and i can ramble on and on and but i again like what i mentioned in the piece like i used to listen to marsden and landry on from the fan 590 every time my dad dropped me off at school and i thought to myself yeah i'm I'm an opinionated sports guy like what's stopping me if i do have a good voice like what's stopping me from like going on the radio and kind of turning this into a career and that was at that point where i was really struggling to figuring out what the direction I was going to go in. Like I knew I wanted to get into sports, but I didn't know necessarily how I was going to get there. So I figured radio broadcasting was like a better idea than what other people were encouraging me to do. I remember my parents were telling me, Oh, you should probably be a teacher. Mm. And I'm saying this because my mom's a teacher and she's like, yeah, you get paid well and you get summers off and whatnot. And Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of job security more so than you would get as like a journalist or in radio and I'm like, ah, that's not really what I see for myself, but whatever. It's, it's an idea. But radio broadcasting was like the first thing where I was like, yeah, I could go to school and maybe turn this into something. Maybe work at the fan 590 one day, who knows? But yeah, that first semester was, <laughs> was not pleasant. There was a, a, a lot of stuff that I wasn't necessarily ready for mentally, like going transitioning from high school to college, you know, without that one year gap is just like, it just kind of smacks you in the face, like how different it is, like how much more pressure there is. Cause now you're like paying to there, paying to be there, like paying to be at school, paying for the program. And most of the assignments I was being assigned, it was like a lot of technical stuff. And I remember I had to do like a, a 15 minute radio broadcast in front of like the entire class. And my teacher would like slip me notes, like emergency notes, like, 
you know, you know, like you would in like on an actual radio broadcast. And I got like so nervous and I got tightened up. And no matter all of the good that the Raptors was doing and helping me loosen up, being in front of like 15 people, 20 people doing like a live show, it was like the most nerve wracking thing I had ever done. So I hate to admit it, but I like I choked a lot in those moments and doing all of the other assignments, like I was starting to realize you know, I'm, I'm supposed to do four semesters of this. Like, I could barely get through one. And then, obviously, that led to me, like, my grades being really bad and eventually uh, Seneca giving me the old boot. Yeah, you mentioned that. So the college actually kicked you out. But what was it actually as bad as it, like, sounds really? So, like, you kind of knew at this point, like, this wasn't really for you. Like, you know that your grades were waning mostly because of your interest level, right? So was it as much of a blow as it sort of seemed like it might have been i hate to fail in anything even if i don't like it like, sure, even sure, if i didn't yeah. like doing it or, or was passionate like i was passionate about it but i just feel like the actual work was just like really making me second guess a lot of things and mm. yeah in general like looking back like it was probably awesome that they kicked me out but yeah i would have rather just kind of like transitioned over and said hey like radio isn't for me i'm just going to take broadcast journalism I don't need to be suspended for this one year because you kicked me out because my grades were so bad. Yeah. But yeah, I I had been thinking for a while that broadcast journalism or something broader where I could like exit school and have more opportunities ahead of me. Like if you just have a radio broadcasting degree, chances are the score probably wouldn't have given me a second look because that doesn't necessarily say that I can write mm-hmm. in broadcast journalism. They teach you everything. They teach you TV. They teach you behind the scenes. They teach you radio. They teach you print. They teach you all that stuff. So I'm like, okay, that that would help me out way more than a radio broadcasting degree. And that was some of my fellow students were kind of miserable too. Like they were such a bad influence on me. Like they were, you know, I'm a procrastinator, like I said, and they were like way more of a procrastinator than I ever was. So it was just hard to be around students who may not have been. As passionate, you know, I certainly wasn't at that point, and, and they were showing signs of being the same way. So, yeah, in hindsight, do, doing the switch and, and getting into a new program with, uh, you know, with a with a new light at the end of the tunnel and, and more opportunities ahead of me, yeah, the best decision ever. Yeah, so you switched over to broadcast journalism, and it's and you were suspended for that year, which is kind of weird when you think about it, just because I mean you know, you go to college to learn and then you don't do well. So they kick you out and then you want to learn more or something, uh, you know, you're better at or whatever and switch over and they make you wait a year. Like, Oh, we don't want you to learn yet. Like it's, yeah. it seems kind of, you know, silly, honestly, from an education standpoint, but whatever. So you switched over to broadcast journalism and just, you had to wait that year. Uh, and you worked at a golf club during this time. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite parts uh, of this piece was that you got tipped a hundred dollars while you were there for a condom joke. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a, a regular one of the members who came up. It was like pouring rain that day, and there was like no no one's there. But the the real hardcore golfers, they don't care if there's like lightning, thunder, whatever. They're still going to try and make an attempt to go out there. Yeah. So he pulls up in his golf cart, and he has like this plastic sheath over top of it to keep him dry and he comes up to our pro shop on the pro shop on the side and i'm just kind of like washing clubs at that point and he makes some sort of joke about like he's like like, hey buddy like that like that's my condom on top of like this big plastic thing (laughs) i don't know why he said that he was just trying to be funny yeah 
And just as like a why, and my supervisor's like right there, and I don't know why the hell I said this. And uh, I'm like, you must tuck tuck it in your sock, eh? And he just looks at me, and he has like the 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 biggest smirk on his face. He's not laughing, and I'm I'm like, I just realized like my boss is right behind me. So the guy did, goes into his pocket, he pulls out a hundred dollars. I think it was like five yeah five twenties or whatever. He just hands it to me. He's like, you just made my day, son. I'm like, wow, like this is the coolest thing. But I, I remember there was like a protocol at that point where, like, where, where we were not supposed to accept tips from members. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I'm probably going to have to say to this guy, I have to give it back. My supervisor just looked at me and he's like, keep it. I'm like, all right, <laughs> this is this is a pretty sweet day. Yeah, I mean, you definitely earned it. That's, that's pretty I don't know, Again, I would, like, nine times out of ten, I would not say that joke, but <laughs> it was a part-time job during the summer at a golf course that's, like, two minutes down the road from my place. I'm like, whatever, just just say it. Yeah. Well, it worked out for you, so there you go. Yeah. Um. Yeah, okay, so then you're in, you got, uh, you know, you go through that year, and you're working and stuff, and then you get back into school, and you're in broadcast journalism. Um, which like you mentioned, you're out in the field a lot in this program <clears throat> and so you're busy all the time and you mentioned you're not much of a coffee drinker. So, but you need, felt like you needed something to like help keep you, you know, uh, awake basically and give you that extra shot of energy. Um, right. and you start drinking energy drinks. And so I actually had my own like sort of flashback because, um, there was a girl when I went to high school who uh, she drank, you know, monster energy drinks. Oh, yeah, those are way worse than what I had, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she drank those a lot, like, all the time. Like, on the daily, she was drinking, I don't know, at least three every day. Anyway, she ended up drinking so many that uh, she basically had to go get her stomach pumped one day. She just had too many. She just overtook her one day. Yeah, it was wild. They had to actually take her out of school, out of the classroom, in an ambulance, take her to the hospital, and she had to get her stomach pumped because that's how much... Uh, of that monster energy drink she was drinking it was it was wild mm-hmm. so Damn. yeah so i have never touched an energy drink because of that experience um <laughs> which is probably a good thing for me um but yeah. I, I also don't drink coffee either so i'm i'm really boring i drink like water and that's it um <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why people like coffee i hate the taste of that stuff uh, but to each their own yeah i can't do it either I, it's uh it's gross um <laughs> but yeah okay so so, you know, you were, um, and you were doing a project with a classmate and you felt like an attack coming on essentially. And, um, you left and at first you seemed to think it was like a heart attack, but it, it's, it then it came pretty clear that it was maybe it was something else. And it was like maybe a combination of the energy drinks and anxiety and stress and whatever it was. And so mm-hmm. looking back on it now, do you think it was more an anxiety attack more than anything else? I probably, yeah. I mean, th- those five-hour energy drinks that I was I was downing like every day, they, they advertise it as like five sh- shots of coffee in one. I'm like, oh, well, this will definitely wake me up. But you yeah. do that constantly every morning. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like the stresses of the world, like stuff that you might be keeping down inside, all come to the forefront. Mm. So like, yeah, I'm sitting there at my, in the computer lab. And like I just start like sweating and my heart starts racing and like I get, I get this pain in the center of my chest. I'd never really felt anything like that before. And like a shooting pain up my arm. I'm like, oh man, like am I? I'm not having a heart. Like I don't think I'm having a heart attack, but it definitely feels like I'm having one. Yeah. So I look over to the the girl I was working with, Alex, and I'm like, yeah, I just I just need to like go for a walk or whatever. Like I'm 
I need to like loosen up or whatever. I like, I give her some sort of like crap excuse mm-hmm. and I exit and yeah, I just like bolt to the washroom. I'm like freaking out. I'm like, just make sure that someone like knows where you are and is like at least keeping an eye on you. And I do like, you know, I, I stand over the sink and I just kind of like put water in my hands and like rub it on my face. And I'm like, man, get your shit together, Walter. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? And some guy, like, comes out of the stall, and I'm like, hey, buddy, I don't know who the hell this guy is. I was like, can you just, like, watch me for, like, two seconds? I'm not, like, I'm not, like, feeling too hot right now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, that was, like, for the the few weeks after, like, I still had those pains, like, recurring, and it was just, like, a constant pain, like, especially in my arm, and I was complaining about it all the time, and my parents were, yeah, you need to get that looked at. Yeah. So I go to the doctor and I'm like, I, I tell them my symptoms or whatever. And they, they barely looked at my chest. They were just like, they listened to me. Like they, they put the scope there and they were like listening to my heart rate or whatever. And she just like hands me a slip. She's like, go up to like the seventh or eighth floor. I'm like, what is this for? It's like, uh, oh, I think, I think I might be in your head. Like, what is really? Cause I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. My brain's doing this to me. So they send me up and I'm talking to like this, you know, therapist or whatnot and she starts asking me questions about yeah it's like someone died recently or have you like seen like anyone die or has there been anything traumatic in your life and i'm like no like i just i have these pains in my chest i don't know what the what the hell's going on she's like yeah it's probably like you're you're in college right i'm like yeah it's like oh well a lot of college students deal with anxiety and sometimes like depression and whatnot and like the stresses of like work and whatnot and money and like it, it could be like taking its toll on you, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe. I at that point I was like, I was stressed, but no, not any more so than like a normal college kid. I was just worried about getting my work done and mm-hmm. and all that jazz. But maybe there was something else that I was kind of like, you know, not willing to discuss that even I wasn't even I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. So she prescribed some stuff to me and. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to take it because my parents were of the thought process that if it's just in my head that I can just beat it through willpower and I don't need pills to to help me be happy. So that was kind of frustrating. But again, I think it all stemmed from me taking those damn energy drinks. It just, you know, it, it, it just kind of flooded up to the point where I just burst and all of my anxiety and negativity just kind of blew up at that point. Yeah, it's interesting how stuff like that can sort of just bubble all that stuff up to the top, to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it was interesting. So you never ended up taking any of the anti-anxiety pills at all? I think I took I think I think took one, wow. like the first day. And then cool. my mom uh, just grabbed it from me. And she's like, I'm going to hold on to this so you, like, you, you don't feel like you need to rely on it. Because she was worried that I was going to like see it every time I was in pain. Yeah. And just like okay. become dependent on the pills. I see. And I understood that. But I was in so much pain at that point. I, I was like, just give me the damn pill. Like, if it, mm-hmm. this is prescribed by a doctor. Like, I need this. Yeah. But, I mean, she did what she had to do. And I'm still here. So it's not like it, it killed me or anything. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that was her decision. Did any of the stuff that she suggested, like the books and the, uh, about you know mental wellness and stuff like that, did any of that help? Uh, there was this one book. I forget what it was called. It was it was just like kind of like a tiny book she grabbed from Indigo or whatever that I would just kind of glance through. But I was so stubborn at that point. I was I was in that phase where I wasn't really into reading, so I would just kind of like browse certain things or whatnot. But no, I can't I can't say that uh, it did much good. Yeah, I mean, that so that that's pretty brutal. You know, it's 
uh, honestly, this it sort of reminded me a bit of um, when Kevin Love was describing his anxiety attack last season, <clears throat> and just some of the ways you described it, like not being able to breathe and um, thinking maybe it was a heart attack and things like that, and very similar to what Kevin Love said. And I just was like, wow, this, you know, I, I so I've personally never experienced an anxiety attack, but it sounds like just one of the most frightening things ever, especially when, you know, like, these are things that can happen to anybody. Like, Kevin Love's in really great shape, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. He's an NBA athlete, um, you know. So, like, it can happen to anybody. It's um, It just sounds really, uh, oof, really scary. Anxiety doesn't discriminate. But I, I, ever since that first one, and I've had, like, a number of anxiety attacks since then, but now I know what it is, so it doesn't freak me out nearly as much as this first one did because mm. – even though I didn't necessarily believe it was a heart attack, I knew something was wrong. But now, like, when you go to see a doctor and whatnot and they explain to you, yeah, these are the symptoms of an anxiety attack. This is how you're supposed to feel. Like, it kind of just comes and goes. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of calms me down knowing, okay, I don't need to, like, admit myself to the hospital every time I have chest pain. I'm just going to assume that it's, like, my anxiety building up. Although, hopefully, I never actually have an issue with my heart and I toss it off as anxiety because that would be kind of frightening. Yeah, the, that you <laughs> maybe need to find a way to uh, sort of, I guess, differentiate those, but that might be kind of tough. Yeah, um, I could see that might be difficult. But okay, so after Seneca then, uh, which is where you went, you mm-hmm. started blogging. Um, and so up to this point, you hadn't blogged at all, had you? No, uh, I was focused solely on getting my schoolwork done. And then after I graduated, it was just kind of like, all right, now what do I do? Like I didn't, the, the, the internships that I was doing on the side or whatnot, like that wasn't necessarily anything I wanted to continue with. And I was like, okay, how can I get into writing? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I started that, uh, really crappy blog, Walter's world of sports, which I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't necessarily looking to turn in anything special, but I wasn't confident in my writing yet. And I felt, okay, this was at least a way for me to practice and, you know, I, I can get good enough to where I could start applying for like real jobs. And I was eyeing like local places, like local papers or even being like a news editor for like a, a TV station. But I, I needed to get the basics down first. So that's why I went to WordPress and I, I started World, Baldur's World of Sports. Definitely. Yeah. So you started there and then um, somebody from Fansided, uh, Andrew Kennedy, I believe, right? Yes. He uh, came across your blog, and he was impressed, clearly, um, because he asked you to become a part of Fansided and Sir Charles in Charge, which is still a blog today, mm-hmm. um, and basically handed you the keys there, as I guess, like, it, all this stuff has changed a lot, uh, you know, over the past however many years, but, like, was it, yeah. was it still, like, a basically, like, a managing editor sort of position? Oh, I ran the entire site. Like, okay. all of the stories were written by me, all of the videos that were posted were done by me, like anything that needed to be up on the site was controlled by me. So that was kind of like my full-time gig at that point. I didn't, you know, I, I don't, I forget if I was doing the golf club at that point or what. Oh yeah. I wasn't doing the golf club. Sorry. But, uh, I had, I didn't really have much work on the side. So I was like, okay, if, if this is what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be running the site. I'm going to put all of my time and, and attention into making it great. And they had incentives on the side. Like if you're, you were getting the most clicks or whatnot, they would throw a little bit of money your way. So that kind of, that definitely incentivized me to make Sir Charles in charge as good as it could be. But I didn't have any staff writers. Like it was just kind of all being done 
by me and that was frustrating but i didn't really i i knew i wasn't good but i didn't necessarily trust anybody to like be taking part along with me like i just felt better knowing that i had full you know full control over the content that was going up and i was like okay if i if this site gets any credit it's all going to go to me and i was really stubborn in that regard but mm-hmm. it was a it was a good experience for me like anyone who controls their own site or blog now like i have the full and utmost respect for because it is definitely not easy yeah it def- that's true for sure yeah i also think fanside is a great place even still uh to get started writing about sports um i was also started at fansided really yeah for, for i guess in my terms of like the first time i got paid for writing about sports it was at hoops habit so right. and michael dunlap brought me in there and so i'm uh, forever grateful to him for that um but yeah it's definitely a great place to start even now and um you know it's doing really really well in general now too with the step back and everything there so um yeah i had i genuinely and i mentioned this in the story too like i came back for a second stint like a few years yeah. later i think i was like doing like a news desk kind of thing for them okay and i was there for one day and then i left because wow. i had I, i'm not, I'm not going to bury the company obviously because I think a lot of changes have been made, and I don't think this per- this one specific person is there anymore. But that one experience, that one day, like soured me on them so much. Like I just wanted the worst things to happen to fans sided. But now, like looking back, it's like okay, they've made a lot of positive strides, and I think the people that work there are, are fantastic. And there's a lot of really tremendous writers that are there. So trust me, I, I wish fans sided all the best. But that one day, my God, that one day. <laughs> it must have been a brutal day for that. Oh yeah, this this one guy. This let let, let, let me just say that I made um I made a mistake. It, it was on me. At least in this person's view, it was a mistake that I made. And this person rubbed it in my face in front of everybody for the entire day. Wow. Yeah, I I couldn't believe it. But again, I don't think that person works there anymore. Thumbs up to you, fan sided. You're doing well. <laughs> All right, so then you move on to Raptors HQ, which, of course, is still going strong. Fantastic blog full of fantastic people, uh, at least at this point. I'm sure all the people, I, I don't know everyone who's ever been there because, uh, obviously, I'm a little later to the game than some people. But, um, mm. yeah, it's been um, everyone I've ever met from there has been very kind, very nice. Um, so, yeah, you were there for uh, a while, and that was where you got you know your first credentials to go to uh, a game as media. Yeah, I was there for a couple of seasons, I think. I started there under the uh, under Adam Francis, who brought me on. I just kind of sent him an email. I said, I, I, I write about the Raptors. I'm a fan. Like, if you're looking for any, you know, staff writers to come aboard, please let me know. So that's how I got the gig originally. And then I was there when they transitioned over to uh, Alex Wong, who Twitter knows as Stephen LeBron. Right. And then Daniel Reynolds as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I got to go to my first game. I was there. Um, I went with a writer named Scott Campbell, who, ironically enough, I get to work with now. He's one of the social media editors at The Score, so that's really cool. Um, but but going there, and I, I even had the opportunity because the, the room that I got changed in when I was with Game Operations is right next to the media room. So I stepped out of the media room, and it was surreal seeing all the writers that I had been following and looking up to at that point. So that, and I tried to shake as many hands as I could and get as many names. But I walked over into the game ops room, and it, it was kind of a new uh, department at that point. I think they had changed like the supervisor. But I walked in, and everyone was like, "Like Walder, like look at you!" Like I was looking 
more spiffy than usual because I knew of like, this is my first media game. Like I want to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was cool to see their reactions. Like, wow, Chris, you've, you've, you've come a long way here. Like that, that made me feel really good about myself. But that, that experience taught me about certain things you're not supposed to be doing during, as a member of the media, like we were <laughs> up in the gondola looking over the game. And during the player intros, I started clapping, like hearing for the Raptors mm-hmm. and everyone's looking at me. He's like, no, don't do that. You're not supposed to show favoritism. You're supposed to be like a biased reporter. I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry. Like that was kind of embarrassing. But after that, like I've been to a couple more games since then. I think I've got the ropes down. Nice. Uh, yeah, I could definitely see. I mean, I feel like anybody's first experience going to something as media probably has a mistake or two. Um. I hope so. That would make me feel pretty. Make me feel a lot better about how that day went. <laughs> Uh, so, and then you went on to become a Toronto Raptors featured columnist at Bleacher Report, um, which of course is still a huge website, um, lots of views, um, just a big website in general, which was obviously an attraction for you, um, Mm -hmm. but sort of during this period of time, um, there was, like you mentioned before, there was a lot of procrastination, which led to a lot of late nights and... Uh, there was a lot of waiting until the last moments, and anxiety was high, and there's even yeah. Facebook was sending you painful reminders about you know other people and what they're doing, which I think a lot of people think about um, a lot of the time. Facebook's Facebook's kind of brutal. Facebook's not great. It's not always great. Um, yeah, it sends you a agreed. lot of yeah. It sends you a lot of stuff where you're like, man, I don't know if I needed to know that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, look look how great my life is. I'm on this island, or I'm working overseas, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, mute, block, yeah. get out of my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all this stuff kind of builds up, and you're getting worn down, and there's even all, like, all these editorial notes coming back on pieces, and, you know, there's obviously the, troll, the trolls and the comments, and, um, you know, a, a lack of money, and... So all this stuff just keeps piling on and piling on until basically you're thoroughly depressed. And you kind of end that section of the piece in, you know, two of the most potent lines, probably the two most potent lines of the piece, which is, I wanted to give up, I really wanted to die. Which is, man, obviously extremely heavy, um, but, like, yeah. I mean, so many people can relate to those two lines, even in the buildup of just, like, all that all that stuff, the feeling like you're failing, like you're not where you're supposed to be, like everyone's rocketing past you, like there's nothing left until you get to, you know, a really dark place. Um, so, I mean, that's that's got to be just, you know, one of the most difficult periods of your life, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, your mom kind of came out of nowhere, I guess. I mean, she was always around, but like she sort of came out of nowhere yeah. and was like confronted you and was like, you know, we got to talk about this. So obviously, you know, like, um, it was a reminder of someone that was there and someone who was care, they, you know, was caring about you and all that kind of stuff. So are are you, it sounds, it sounds kind of like a silly question, but are you glad that you actually chose to talk to her and decide to say, yeah, look, this is, this is what's going on. Like, I'm just, everything is just wearing on me so much. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, she, she approached me, like, I, I really was like, isolating myself and I, I was looking for any means to not communicate with anybody whether it was like my friends or, or my family like I just didn't care anymore about human interaction or you know I just kind of wanted to be in my own little bubble and just stay there but she I have, a, I have a very small family like just to put it out there like it's my mom my dad 
and my brother. Like, mm-hmm. I have no grandparents. I have no aunts. I have no uncles. I have no cousins. Like, they've either passed away or they're not around anymore for a litany of reasons. So it's like I have, like, this circle that I'm in. So when I'm not talking, like, it, it becomes extremely noticeable. It's like a, mm-hmm. it's like a fourth of the family is just kind of, like, doesn't give a crap anymore. Mm-hmm. So she approaches me in my room. Like, this this was, like, for a, a long stretch. I can't tell you how long, but a, a long stretch where I wasn't going down for – like for dinner or whatever, I wasn't calling them. Like I didn't, I didn't care. So she approaches me and she's like, okay, Chris, like this has to stop. Like what, what's going on? You're not talking. We don't know what's, what's on your mind. So that's why you need to tell us. Cause we, cause like, I want to help. Mm-hmm. And I, at first I didn't want to really get into it. Like I was just yeah. in one of those moods and I was just like, no, I'm, I'm fine. Like I'm just working on my, Bleacher Report stuff, and I'm looking for a job, and blah, blah, blah. But then at that point, for whatever reason, I just kind of, like, broke. Like, I just started crying, and I just started venting to her, and I was like, I'm in a really bad place. Like, there's been, like, a lot of dark thoughts in my head, and, you know, I said that there was some stuff that I didn't want to talk about, and I'm not going to talk about that. But, yeah, it, it really did get, like, pretty dark and really bad for a for a point there. But I opened up to her. Like, you know, my mom's one of, like, a best friend to me. Like, I feel like I could talk to her about anything. But this was, like, one of, like, the hardest conversations I ever had to have because she didn't know how the extent of, like, my anxiety and my depression. So she was getting visibly emotional, like, me kind of opening up to her in this regard. But rather than kind of, like, feel sorry for me, she's like, okay, well, how are we going to fix this? Because you can't keep going like this. And... I was like the first to admit, yeah, like I, I can't keep going down this path that I was going. So she's like, you need to see a doctor, like maybe you need to go to therapy or like just figure out what you need to do and we'll help you do it. So that made me feel better because when you get into like one of those like really dark places, like like no one really cares what happens to you, even though that's completely untrue. Like if something mm-hmm. was to ever happen to me, I would I know that there would be a ton of people who would be upset, mm-hmm. but you don't see that, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the point where I, I went to my doctor and I said, yeah, like my family physician. And I said, I'm very depressed. Like, it's been a really rough year, couple years for me. Like, how can I get through this? Like, what am I supposed to do? So she referred me to uh, one of the best therapists in the area. It took me. It took her a while um, to get me the referral. Like it was, it wasn't until like maybe a, f- a few months afterwards that I actually saw this guy. Um, but yeah, it was called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I started talking to this guy, and like the first session was just him kind of like listening to my problems. Like I opened up to him. He's like, "Do you have a, you have a girlfriend?" I'm like, "No, I just we had just a, a really bad breakup." And and one night, like, "Are you working?" And I explained all that to him. And then he told me to get this book and I, I forget what mind over matter or something or mind over mood. And there was like a bunch of t- tables in this book. And he's like, whenever you, you know, like one a day, like you fill these things out, it, it's kind of like writing out your feelings and how things are going. And if it's like, you're, you're feeling really good or you're feeling really bad, feeling really bad, you record it. So we would go back and forth over these charts and whatnot. And he would explain to me like, you know, things that I could do to kind of increase my moods and, you know, going to the gym more, trying to like talk to the people, like your, your close friends, your buddies, like ask them out for a beer, like be around positive people. And it it was those little changes that I was making that really did a, a lot of good. Like I, I couldn't keep sitting in my room writing the occasional Bleacher Report piece for like little to no money and keep good, keep doing that for 
you know, however long I would have stayed there because it was so toxic for my mental health and doing the cognitive behavioral therapy, it, it, it really was a positive thing for me. And uh, I think who knows uh, what would have happened had I not gone through with that. Yeah. So, and uh, sort of after this period and um, you going through the behavioral therapy, um, you applied to the score uh, where you now work and you applied for your current job five times. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't get an interview until the fifth time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, persistence is re- rewarded and, uh, you got an interview and, um, had they not reached out, you were planning on going to Centennial for, uh, their sports journalism program, which is where I'm going to be going. So mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. You even saved the emails from the interview that you had and the one you got from when you got the job. So you became a part-time yeah. news editor, which is really great. Yeah, that was I, – I remember uh, reading that email out loud to my parents and they just like lost it. My dad was like jumping up and down and he was so happy for me because he knew all of the time and effort I had put in like doing the Bleacher Report stuff, Raptors HQ, sitting on their desktop computer just like typing out – articles that I'm still too embarrassed to go back and look at because I thought I was such a bad writer back in the day. But for all of that's come full circle and lead me to a job at the score where I could like go to an office and, and be around people and kind of get some stability in my life with like an actual schedule and feel like I'm a contributing member of society. Like there was such like a weight off my shoulders at that point because I know how hard it is for all of the writers that like I interact with on NBA Twitter to like because there's a lot of them out there that don't just do this for a hobby. They do it because they actually kind of want to break into the industry and turn it into something sustainable for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I totally respect that because that's all I ever really wanted for myself. And to finally get a job at the score where I've been for three and a half years, like I had people, like a couple of people in the industry tell me, man, you're not going to be there for like more than six months. I'm like, why would you say that? It's like, oh, there's a lot of turnover there. They're always kind of like looking to replace people, like new ideas, new minds, new writing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm telling you right now, I'm not – now that I got this job, it took me so damn long to get it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lose it over something as silly as that. Like I'm going to give them every reason in the world to want to keep me. And three and a half years later, you know, after the first year, they boosted me up to full time. I'm one of the more senior editors on staff now. Like there's been some internal changes like – uh guys that some NBA Twitter people might like William Liu, who's like one of the kings of Raptors Twitter. He does like strictly editorials now. So like just for like the NBA news desk, I'm one of the more senior editors like myself and John Chick. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm extremely happy where I'm at, man. Like I get to watch NBA basketball. I get to be contributing to one of the biggest sports apps on the planet. And there's a lot of good that that's come from this journey and to get me to where I'm at. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you all the stuff you've been through, you mentioned, has given you this great work ethic. You have the tireless effort, like you're saying, because, you know, you have this job, you want to keep it. And clearly, you know, you've put in the effort and the time and um, it really shows. And uh, I mean, you know, I read your stuff. I know a lot of people read your stuff. It's pretty clear that you put in uh, a lot of work because the stuff's really good. So um, even, you know, near the end of uh, the piece here, it ends... Uh, well, you know, with a lot of hope and, um, you know, the fact that uh, you're doing well and um, you're happy, probably happier now than maybe you've ever been. And you go to the gym and you have group chats and you have a girlfriend and uh, mm-hmm. all this stuff is is working out really well. So 
you know, that's that's really great. So things are uh, things are looking up. Like I've gotten so many like emails and like DMs on Twitter from people who actually read the, my piece on the medium. And I when I wrote it, I didn't really do it like it was kind of like a way for it was like therapeutic for me in a sense like it was mm-hmm. kind of like me leaving my past in the past because there are times where i kind of like look back on that stretch of my life and i'm like maybe i get too deep into my own head about like certain things that may have happened and what could have gone differently but in the end it kind of like all pushed me to where i'm at now so i'm grateful for all those things that have happened but i i get emails and you know dms from people who read the story and i'm i'm grateful that they did obviously but the fact that they were able to relate to some of the things that i went through Mm -hmm. and i'm like like that's awesome like if they they could look at my story and and see themselves maybe they'll have a little bit more optimism about where their life is headed or the road that they're going down because there are hundreds thousands of writers out there that cover basketball that are infinitely better than me like to this day i'm still not extremely confident in my writing because i'm surrounded by so many talented writers and i always compare myself to them and i shouldn't be doing that but that's just like human nature you want to be as good as you can be but when you're a tier below certain people it can be disheartening but it is what it is but at the end of the day, seeing all of these great people that I interact with on NBA Twitter, I root for everybody. I want everyone to have success. I want everyone to like to reach their goals, follow their dreams, as corny as that sounds, because that's that's what I did. I was either too stubborn to change into something else and you know become a teacher like my mom had recommended, but I'm happy where I'm at, and I want everyone to kind of feel that jubilation that i feel for myself and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done i'm not where i'm i want to be with my career and where i'm heading in life but it's nicer to be here than like at my desk like continuing to struggle and get people to notice me i feel like i'm beyond that at this point yeah that's great that's incredible um i know i'm i'm glad that that's where the piece uh, ended for now and that there's so much um, just optimism for the future um, so I'm really happy for you man and I'm glad that uh, everything's kind of turned out well so uh, we don't have too much time left to talk about the actual writing stuff and I'm definitely going to have you back on this podcast again because it's been fun so far um, and we can talk more about that kind of stuff then um, sure thing. if I did want to have I'm going to ask one quick question maybe just about uh, the writing in general because I'm just curious about when you actually got going on the piece, did, did stuff sort of just spill out uh, really quickly while you're writing? Did it come out easily or was it more like I have to be careful with every line I'm writing here? This The piece took me maybe like a month and a half to complete. And there was a stretch there where I went to Disney World with my girlfriend and I promised I'm not going to do any writing or <laughs> go on Twitter or whatnot. So I wanted to hang out with Mickey Mouse. Who, who doesn't want to hang out with Mickey Mouse? Uh, but I, I had an idea when I started this piece of, of kind of like the direction I wanted to go. Like I wanted to talk about my schooling. I wanted to talk about working with the Raptors and I wanted to talk about the struggles of being a freelancer and not making any money. And it kind of, you know, it, it changed in many ways as I was writing. Like I think I cut like maybe like 1500 words out of this thing 
when it was all said and done. I didn't want it to get too long. It's like 4,000 words, so it's, it's mm-hmm. still pretty long. Yeah. But I know the attention span of most readers out there isn't what it used to be. Mm, sure. So I kind of wanted to get to like the main points, tackle those, and move on. And there was even a point where I was like, do I want to talk about like really specific things? Like when I had that blurb near like the final third of the piece where I was like, yeah, something happened and only a handful of people know about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into it. Yeah. I had actually written out what had happened. Wow. And then I was like, uh, maybe I don't want to be that open because sure. there's some things that are better left unsaid. But I, I think a lot of people kind of assumed what it was. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, it, when, when, when people start writing, maybe it's maybe it's just me. Sometimes you just ramble on and it, it kind of like builds up by itself. Like yeah. all the thoughts were kind of coming out, all the memories and, you know, like the Randy Foy story and the condom story. And I was like, oh, this is funny. Maybe I didn't want it to be like the most depressing thing that everyone had ever read in their entire life. Like I wanted to have like a little bit of humor in there just to kind of lighten the mood. So I'm glad I did that. And I also wanted it to end on a high note. So that's just how the kind of the piece was ultimately structured. And sure, I could I could have written a lot more and i and i did but i think the way it kind of ended up the the feedback that i've gotten has been very positive so uh, i'm glad it it turned out the way it did yeah i am too Uh, i really enjoyed it it was a great read and uh, i want to just thank you again for coming on the podcast chris i really appreciate it uh is there anything you want to plug before we go uh just you know follow me on twitter at Walder Sports, download the Score app, check out my stuff. We, we, the NBA season's about to start, so we got a lot of <laughs> cool things coming your way, editorials and, and what have you. So I'm excited. This will be my third full season. I, I remember when I first started at the Score, it was like right at the start of the playoffs. So they like threw me right into the, the lines then in terms of coverage. But, you know, Toronto Raptors, we got Kawhi Leonard. Like, this is going to be a fun year, man. Heck yeah, it is. Kawhi Leonard's on the Raptors, baby. It's going to be wild. Oh, yeah. Uh, Title or bust. (laughs) (laughs) Title or bust, yep. Um, Okay, so you'll be able to find this podcast, the Writer's Right podcast, on Anchor.fm, the Anchor app if you have it. Uh, It's also now on Apple Podcasts. You can find it there. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, at Writer's Right Pod, where links to the episodes will be posted. And until then, you can follow me, at Halvolution, on Twitter. And you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic. B-Ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek if you like movie stuff. Thank you for listening. Have a good day. Go Raptors.